Okay, so uh, because we have a lot to cover, I'm going to get started by just giving you a real-life example of, of, uh, about why these next two lectures are important. So the real-life example is that you have lunch or a snack, maybe of, you know, baked potato or pasta, and then... Uh, the first thing you're going, the first thing is going to happen in your bloodstream is that glucose will go up. <coughs> glucose going up is going to trigger a response from the pancreas. The pancreas is going to release insulin. Insulin is going to travel through the bloodstream and look for its receptor the insulin receptor. So it can actually find its receptor in many tissues, including the liver, muscle, uh, a whole variety of peripheral tissues. <coughs> when insulin binds and finds its receptor, it is going to instruct that tissue to do something. For example, Insulin is going to tell the liver, <coughs> we have plenty of glucose, you can synthesize glycogen. So you activate the glycogen synthesis. We have plenty of glucose, you can activate glycolysis. So in that process, two things happened. One tissue communicated with another tissue, the pancreas to the liver. <clears throat> However, that signal had to be transmitted across the plasma membrane of the hepatocyte. And that transmission across the plasma membrane is what we call signal transduction, converting an extracellular signal to an intracellular response. So obviously, you will see that much of what we do, uh, the body does, is going to be regulated this way. <coughs> okay, so let's get started. And uh, uh, it's very important that cells communicate all the time <coughs> because uh, communication between cells can regulate many processes from gene expression to cell shape, cell migration, to affecting growth, differentiation, as well as cellular maintenance. But in our context here, communication between cells is very important in regulating metabolism. So for much of biochemistry, there's a good emphasis on that. <coughs> so the example I gave you, really, there are two steps to this communication process. The first one is an intercellular signal, meaning the pancreas uh, releasing insulin, insulin reaching the liver. That's an intercellular between two different tissues. Once insulin reaches the liver, it is going to elicit an intracellular signal which results in a cellular response. So two types of signals, 
that should be distinguished. The, the, really, the focus of this lecture is going to be primarily on the bottom one, on the intracellular signaling mechanisms. <coughs> Excuse me. So, here's an example. Here's a cell releasing a hormone, finds a, a neighboring cell with the appropriate receptor, receptor on the cell surface, activates that cell. So, that's the intercellular signal. At the target cell, which is down below, you are going, the hormone is going to find the appropriate receptor and then transduce this signal to the cell interior, sometimes causing many different changes, but in some cases causing the production of an, a second messenger, in this case cyclic AMP. This is just a generic example, okay? It has nothing to do with the insulin example I gave you. <clears throat> okay, so there are three types, general types of intercellular communication. I'll start with this one here, similar to the last example, Paracrine, that means one cell produces a hormone, the hormone diffuses to a neighboring cell and causes its uh, effects on this target, target cell. There are many examples of uh, hormones uh, that fall into that category, eicosanoids, nitric oxide, growth factors, and some neurotransmitters. The second type is called autocrine, and that in this type you have the same cell producing the stimulus and finding the receptor on its cell surface. Many inflammatory responses are mediated through that kind of autocrine uh, uh, inter intercellular um, uh, communication. Again, many uh, inflammatory molecules like the eicosanoids, some growth factors work that way. By far, the most important type <coughs> of intercellular signaling is the endocrine type. So simply, the importance of endocrine signaling is that a hormone is released directly into the bloodstream. So, in that case, it has accessibility to just about every tissue that has a blood supply circulation. And many of the hormones that are very important in metabolism are going to be in that category. Insulin is one, glucagon, epinephrine, steroid hormones, and some peptide hormones. So, a lot of our focus really in the course uh, will be on these. <clears throat> There's a, within really the paracrine, if you want, there are a couple more examples, neuronal signaling and contact through a gap junction. Uh, those are paracrine signaling. I just want, uh, this slide here is more of a reminder. So, you know, I'm anti-memorizing, by the way, okay? I'm more about understanding and conceptualizing. There are obviously some things you gotta remember, names of stuff, but, uh, but it's more important to understand. So I want you to appreciate that all of these 
signals start with the bottom here. All our senses, all our sensory perception is dependent on receptor-mediated signaling. That means light finds its receptor in the retina. Odorants find their receptors in the nose and tastants on the tongue and so on. So really all of our sensory perception is mediated by a cell surface and some intracellular receptors. And so are many other processes from the immune response to growth, to growth to factors to developmental and differentiation signals. <clears throat> so most of what's going on between a stimulus activating a specific receptor uh, has some key features that I want you to really just understand. There's no need to know any specific details. But the first important feature of receptor-mediated signaling is that they are highly specific. So let's say S1 is insulin. This receptor would be the insulin receptor. It is only going to recognize insulin. So that's every receptor we cover in this class and everywhere else is going to be highly specific. So very important. There's no uh, uh, exchange of stimulus for the receptor. All right? <clears throat> that's first one. Second important feature is amplification. Receptors, receptor activation is going to lead to a cascade of intracellular events. So you might activate a receptor, then you activate one molecule of enzyme, and that enzyme might activate three molecules of another enzyme, and so on, and you end up activating a major cellular response downstream. Very important feature of receptor-mediated activation. Third feature is that that process can be desensitized. At some point, these receptors may stop responding or the stimulus may be removed and so on. And finally, it's important to appreciate that cells have, may have many different types of receptors. And in some cases, you might have one signal that, say, is stimulatory and one signal that is inhibitory. And the cell eventually integrates both signals into a response. And don't worry about these down here. That's just uh, so just uh, appreciate that you can have an integration of response. Sometimes, for example, you have counter-regulatory hormones. You have insulin, you have a counter-regulatory hormone like glucagon or cortisol. Uh, they can uh, uh, counter the effects of insulin, but the cell eventually is going to decide on which way it's going to go. <clears throat> okay, so the receptors that respond to specific stimuli are basically... Uh, classified as four general big families, if you want. Okay? Steroid receptors, gated ion channel receptors, receptor enzymes, and the last one, 
my favorite G-protein coupled receptors, okay? And we'll go through all of them, and I'm just going to tell you some key things that you want to focus on. The first one, you want to understand the mechanism that that receptor is activated, okay? And you want to kind of remember a couple of examples that we, uh, I might have given you here. And those are usually included in all the slides. So uh, don't get too much into uh, a lot of details until I tell you which detail it is, okay? Yeah. So let's get started on the four different types of receptors. And I just want to start out by saying here's the cell membrane of the four types of receptors, there are three that are membrane proteins. So the receptors are associated with the membrane. They are integral membrane proteins. They're part of the membrane. Here's one type. Here's another type. Here's a third type. And the fourth type of receptor is going to be different first in that it is intracellular. So here's the cytoplasm there, and this is the nucleus. And this oval pink structure is the receptor. So it's inside the nucleus. So I'll start with this uh, first type here, which is uh, the uh, a good representative of that type of receptor is the steroid receptor. <clears throat> so, first of all, important feature about steroid receptors is that they are always going to be intracellular. They're going to be either in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus. Many examples, testosterone, estrogen, cortisol, and very importantly here, each of these will have their own specific receptor. This is the specificity that you want to know. Testosterone will only bind to a testosterone receptor. Cortisol will only bind to a cortisol receptor. But they share a similar mechanism of action. <clears throat> Similarly, there are other molecules that share a similar mechanism. Vitamin D has a vitamin D receptor inside the cell, and so does a vitamin A or retinoic acid, and so on. So these are important examples to remember that, are, that resemble how steroid receptors, where they are and how they work. In general, the steroid receptor is going to work by changing gene expression, either upregulating or inducing gene expression, or down-regulating or repressing gene expression. That's the major mechanism that you want to remember about steroid receptors. So what that means is simply that whatever gene is being upregulated, the, the protein it encodes will be synthesized at a higher rate and the, the cell will have more of that protein. <clears throat> Importantly, the stimuli that work through this intracellular receptor are all lipophilic. And I just want to give you an idea what that means. Here's cortisol. 
Cortisol is a lipophilic molecule. So is aldosterone, and so is uh, 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 retinoids, and so on. The point of that, don't remember any, you don't really remember, need to know any structures. The point of that, these lipophilic molecules can cross both the plasma membrane as well as the nuclear membrane. So they can find their receptors inside the cell. Very important thing to remember, their intercellular receptor. So here's, a, uh, say, a hormone. Here's the hormone there. Here's a receptor, this bean-shaped structure, and this another receptor. So you can have the receptor being in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus. Okay? The key is that the hormone has to cross both the plasma membrane and the nuclear membrane. So this is the example of, uh, of how, say, cortisol might work. So let's say this is cortisol. Cortisol, you're the stress hormone, if you don't know by now, uh, is <laughs> important hormone <laughs> during stressful times. Uh, it, will, it has the ability to cross the plasma membrane, which is lipophilic in nature. So you need a lipophilic molecule to be able to kind of squiggle its way through the plasma membrane Inside the cytoplasm, cortisol is going to look for its receptor. And this green structure is its receptor. Once they bind, once cortisol binds its receptor, this is now an activated receptor complex, steroid receptor complex, which in turn can translocate into the nucleus, Here's in the, uh, past the nuclear membrane. In the nucleus, this complex is able to bind a specific region and a specific gene designated enhancer region. The effect of this binding is to upregulate the gene expression by stimulating the promoter region of that uh, gene. So you have more messenger RNA made, and consequently you have more protein uh, um, made. And if, this, that, if that protein happens to be an enzyme, that enzyme amounts in the cell will go up. Okay? So this is how most steroid hormone receptors work, upregulating or downregulating specific genes, and that applies to vitamin D, vitamin A, and uh, 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 thyroxin. <clears throat> okay. With, through their own specific receptors. Okay. Again, specificity is key here. So this is really just the same thing. Uh, sometimes that enhancer element that uh, the complex binds to is called hormone responsive element, which is a complex binds only the complex of the receptor and the hormone. Okay, and then you increase transcription, increase translation, and there's your increased uh, amount of uh, protein synthesized. The second type of receptor is. We are moving from the nucleus out to the cell membrane now. Okay? We're going to talk about the remaining three classes of cell surface receptors. The first one is gated ion channel. 
And that's really one of the simplest receptors. Maybe it's three slides worth of, re of uh, presentation. So here's the gated ion channel. I'll just go here for it's easier to talk about it. But you can go back to read the, that. Uh, I just want you to imagine, here's the plasma membrane down here. And this gated ion channel receptor is made up of these five subunits. All proteins, obviously. Right? So, when acetylcholine binds to the extracellular surface on the outside of that receptor, it changes the conformation of this entire receptor and causes it to open up, which allows sodium to come in. And obviously, if you have sodium coming in, you're going to cause depolarization of that membrane. So this is an example of a gated ion channel receptor. It causes the opening of a... It binds on the extracellular surface, causes conformational changes and opening of the gated ion channel. Many neurotransmitters work that way. Acetylcholine... GABA, glycine are two other examples. Okay? Uh, so that's really all you need to know about that. And this is kind of basically what uh, is happening here. Uh, you have, uh, say, acetylcholine binding here and the causing these, the channel at the uh, postsynaptic end. And then you have the channel to open. Okay. <clears throat> Third type of receptor, also cell surface receptor, is known, very important class, by the way, of receptor called receptor tyrosine kinases. So let me explain that briefly. So you want to think of the receptor on the cell surface as having a dual function. First, it's going to bind the stimulus. That's its first function. The second function is that that receptor is actually an enzyme. So it has intrinsic enzymatic activity that only gets activated when the stimulus binds the receptor. So therefore, these uh, receptors are called receptor tyrosine kinases. Now, what is the term tyrosine doing in there? The receptor is a protein. It has primary structure. It has a specific amino acid sequence within that receptor. Within that sequence, there may be specific tyrosine residues as part of the sequence that actually are going to get phosphorylated. So that's what the tyrosine kinase stands for. So that means the receptor has activity that can autophosphorylate specific tyrosine residues on itself. And here's really the uh, illustration there. So think as of these, again, you don't need to know all the details here, but this is 
the insulin receptor. Okay? Here's insulin, these heart-shaped structures there, pretty cute uh, as insulin. That's not its shape, but, uh, you know. Uh, and then you have these, this tetramer here, two alpha, two betas, are the insulin receptor. So when insulin binds to the extracellular surface of the insulin receptor, it is going to activate that tyrosine kinase activity that is intrinsic, that is part of this beta subunit of the insulin receptor. And then the insulin receptor is going to autophosphorylate specific tyrosine residues that are part of this beta structure. So from tyrosine, tyrosine, you remember, have a has a hydroxyl group that can be modified to phosphotyrosine. So that's the first sign of activation of the insulin receptor. It autophosphorylates itself on specific tyrosine uh, residues. That means the tyrosine kinase activity of the receptor has been activated due to the binding of insulin. In addition, once this receptor is activated, it can phosphorylate additional intracellular target proteins. Again, on specific tyrosine residues. Okay? These target proteins could be enzymes. They could be other important functional proteins. But by modifying them, it can change their function uh, through phosphorylation on specific tyrosine residues. Okay? So the first thing that happens when you activate the insulin receptor is you activate the tyrosine kinase activity. After that, it's pretty complicated. Okay? But you want to know that the, uh, the activity of the tyrosine kinase uh, activity of the receptor is going to only be activated when insulin is bound to the extracellular surface. So basically, that's what I uh, said, I think. And this is just to tell you what happens exactly, kind of quickly. Here's the inactive receptor. Insulin binds, and when it's activated, this uh, turns into this gray or blue color. Uh, so it starts phosphorylating its adjacent uh, beta subunit and then both of them get phosphorylated and that's the activated receptor and eventually that receptor can uh, tyrosine phosphorylate specific residues on specific intracellular proteins okay so there are really many important intracellular effectors you don't we're not going to get into the details but there are many protein substrates inside the cell they're designated insulin receptor substrates IRS 1 through 4 they can be phosphorylated on specific tyrosine residues and their function altered there are certain enzymes that can inside the cell that can be phosphorylated on tyrosine residues and their function altered, as well as some proteins that don't have any catalytic activity but uh, play a role of a sort of adapter roles. But I want you to appreciate down here is that because of all of that, dependent on the tyrosine kinase activity of the receptor, 
all of these cellular responses can ensue or can occur. You can have increased glucose uptake, regulation of transcription, typically upregulation of transcription. You can activate some enzymes covalently, or you can uh, upregulate uh, synthesis of enzymes through incre increased gene expression. So, one of the most important effects of insulin, I just throw that in just to give you an example, although it's not necessarily a learning objective, but I just want you to appreciate what happens. When you activate this receptor here with insulin, you're going to, sorry, here, uh, got sort of turned around. Yeah, uh, you're going to initiate this cascade of events. The cascade of events starts by activating the tyrosine kinase activity. And here's the phosphates added on specific tyrosines. And because of that, there's really about more than a dozen steps here, some of them not quite well understood, and many other proteins involved. The Golgi gets a signal to start packaging glucose transporter. It's this yellow rectangle, and this is a Golgi vesicle. So it starts sending these vesicles with glucose transporters to the membrane. The vesicles bind or fuse with the membrane, and now you have more glucose transporters in the membrane. What does that mean? That means that cell, in this case, this could be, say, uh, an adipose tissue cell, adipocyte, will pick up more glucose, and that's how insulin stimulates glucose uptake by specific uh, tissues. Okay? So, but all of this has started by activating the tyrosine kinase activity of the receptor. Okay. And when insulin is no longer there, everything is recycled back. <coughs> so this slide is really kind of uh, more generic, but I want you to appreciate, we just talked about stimulation of glucose transport as an outcome, but uh, I also take this, uh, use this slide to remind you of some, something about insulin that's helpful for you throughout biochemistry uh, course, is that insulin is an important anabolic hormone. Anabolic, a builder. Every time you hear insulin, you think builder. What it does, it stimulates making large macromolecules from small. So you can make complex carbohydrates like glycogen from glucose. Insulin will stimulate that. Insulin will also stimulate synthesis of complex lipids or triacylglycerol from fatty acids. Insulin will promote protein synthesis here on the slide. So you make more proteins from amino acids. So always remember that insulin has an anabolic effect on many cells that carry its receptor. And 
these are uh, represent uh, these effects on protein synthesis, on uh, lipid synthesis, and on uh, glycogen synthesis. Okay, and this is there to kind of rather than s uh, to really just make you a little aware, a little aware that it's really much more complex than what I just told you. Okay, so this is actually an old slide probably eight years old. It just shows you what, how complex the signaling from the receptor to all the plethora of effects that insulin has inside the cell. So don't simplify it, it's very complex. In, in many cases, some of these things aren't quite, well, uh, quite understood. But I want you to kind of appreciate why this is important. Sometimes therapies are based on understanding, you know, what happens in these places where there's a question mark. For example, this is the transporter I told you about, the GLUT4. So if you know how this really works and someone is diabetic, maybe you don't want to give them insulin. You can target a step here and come up with a new therapy. That's the idea, that's the importance of understanding the details sometimes, okay? But again, you don't need to know anything about the slide. I just want you to look at it as a therapeutic opportunity. That that's how new things are discovered by understanding how things work in the first place. Okay. You with me? Okay. So we're going to go to our, my favorite receptor here, which is the G-protein coupled receptor, also called the hep heptahelical uh, receptor. And again, this is this uh, squiggly red structure there that's part of the plasma membrane. <coughs> and uh, let me just say a couple of things here on these receptors. Just to get you inspired to learn as much as you can, okay? First of all, uh, three years ago, there was three or four years ago, there's a Nobel Prize awarded for some discoveries regarding G proteins coupled receptors. Actually, it was the second time that Nobel prize was awarded. The first time was awarded in the early 90s for the initial scientist who discovered the G-protein coupled receptors, the discovery of those receptors. So very important area in biology and medicine. Second thing that will inspire, or ev inspire you even more is that hopefully when you're out practicing, the prescribing drugs, you will realize that nearly 50%, 50 50% of all prescribed drugs target some aspect of G-protein coupled receptors. So extremely important, extremely important class of receptors. Now, 
I want to say a few things about G-protein coupled receptors, uh, general things. This is a large family of receptors. There's at least 200 known G-protein coupled receptors. There's probably about 50 well-characterized G-protein coupled receptors. They share structural similarity but each one is unique in its primary amino acid sequence. That's the first thing to remember. All, all G-protein coupled receptors share structural sim similarity, means their disposition in the membrane is similar. <clears throat> Let me go back up. Why are they called G-protein coupled receptors? They're called G-protein coupled receptors because they transduce their signal through a GTP binding protein. That's why it's called G-protein on the intracellular side. So that's the, hence the name G-protein coupled receptor. They couple themselves to a G-protein and then that G-protein will activate a uh, specific intracellular enzyme. Usually we call that an effector enzyme or a target enzyme. And then that enzyme is going to produce a molecule that was previously absent inside the cell. So when you activate the receptor, you go through a G-protein, a G-protein activates an enzyme, produces a molecule that wasn't there before the receptor was activated. So that molecule that is produced is now called a second messenger. So G-protein coupled receptors always produce a second messenger inside the cell. Okay, that's a very important association I want you to, to uh, have with that, uh, that class of receptors. <clears throat> so I'm going to just uh, uh, tell you one example of a second messenger is this small molecule there, cyclic AMP. Another example are these, we're going to talk about these in great, great detail, but I just want to give you an example. Cyclic AMP is an example of a second messenger. Before receptor activation, this molecule would have been absent inside the cytoplasm. After receptor activation, this molecule concentration goes up. And that's why we call that a second messenger. Second important feature about second messengers is that they are typically small organic molecules. Okay. They are not proteins in nature, they are not peptides, they are typically organic small molecules. Here they are, here are the examples. Uh, cyclic AMP is one, IP3, inositol trisphosphate, diacylglycerol, calcium, cyclic GMP, nitric oxide. We'll talk about all of these actually uh, today uh, and to varying extents, but uh, uh, these are, I want you to appreciate just the, the idea the, or the nomenclature. Second messengers are typically small molecules 
that are not present during the resting state of a cell. When the cell is activated by the appropriate G protein uh, uh, coupled receptor stimulus, then it might produce one of these. In this case, you produce cyclic AMP. If another receptor is activated, you might produce these three, and so on. Okay? So here's the general kind of uh, configuration of G-protein coupled receptors in the membrane. Again, um, I'm going to uh, try to really use this to just give you some key conceptual things about G-protein coupled receptors to help you uh, sort of solidify this, uh, all that information. The first thing I want to say is that, you know, these are called heptahelical because they span the membrane seven times. And this is the extracellular side, and this is the intercellular side. There are four important features that you always want to remember. I pointed to five, but really four important features. The first one is specificity. Let's say this is a beta-adrenergic receptor. It will only bind epinephrine or norepinephrine. So high degree of specificity in terms of stimulus. So that's that always something you want to remember. What receptor is activated by what stimulus? Second important feature you always want to remember is it is going to couple to a unique and specific G protein on the intracellular side. Okay? So another level of specificity. Specificity at the stimulus level, at the G protein level. Third, here, not shown on this slide, is the effector enzyme of the G protein will also be unique, a specific effector or target enzyme. That's three important levels of specificity. The fourth one is that enzyme will produce one type of second messenger only. If that enzyme is adenylate cyclase, it will produce cyclic AMP only. So four levels of specificity associated with each G-protein coupled receptor. Stimulus, G-protein identity, identity of the target enzyme, identity of the second messenger produced. Very important. So I'm going to skip these. I think I kind of talked about them enough. Uh, I just want to uh, show you, here's the family. These uh, red receptors on the cell surface represent the family of cell surface uh, uh, of G-protein, uh, some of the, the members of that family. I just want to point out to you that you can have a different G-protein. That's this here, there, there you can have a different effector enzyme, you can have a different uh, stimulus, 
and you can have different second messengers. And again, signaling from the outside goes all the way to the nucleus sometimes, changing uh, transcription, translation, and many, uh, causing many cellular responses. Fortunately, we're only going to cover two types of uh, receptors here. <coughs> and that's, uh, those are the main two. Well, actually, I'm kind of, I should say, maybe three, three types. Uh, but these are the main two we were going to cover. I want you to think of these as unique receptors. Beta adrenergic receptor here, that's one. And that's what we'll uh, cover later. That's the alpha-1 adrenergic receptor. Uh, but what I want to uh, impress upon you is, again, you want to appreciate the specificity at every level of the hormone, of the G-protein, and the enzyme that is involved. So we'll start with this one, the beta-adrenergic receptor. Uh, I'm going to start here. The name adrenergic receptor is derived from adrenaline. Adrenaline or epinephrine are the stimuli for adrenergic receptor. One type of adrenergic receptor is designated beta because of it has a specific sequence. So it's a unique type of uh, adrenergic receptor designated beta. That beta adrenergic receptor, once uh, that beta adrenergic once activated, is going to activate a specific G protein called GS, and then GS is going to activate adenylate cyclase, which is an enzyme that makes cyclic AMP the second messenger produced. Cyclic AMP is then going to activate an intercellular protein kinase designated protein kinase A. I told you we're only doing two receptors, but we're really doing three receptors. Glucagon, here's another thing. Glucagon has a unique receptor called glucagon receptor. And that unique receptor can activate the same pathway. So the glucagon receptor can activate GS, then activate adenylate cyclase, produce cyclic AMP, then protein kinase A. Very importantly, these arrows don't cross like that. So glucagon can only activate the glucagon receptor, and epinephrine or norepinephrine can only activate the beta-adrenergic receptor. That's the first thing about specificity. <clears throat> 